January 2020 was the month the market crashed. Well, on this podcast. Did you listen to the day the market crashed just a few weeks ago on Rule Breaker Investing? A lot of you did. We got perhaps our biggest Twitter response yet, and Chris Hill's going to join with me again this week just to talk about that. Now, I'm pretty sure you know this. The market didn't crash. It doesn't very often, but there are certainly downdrafts, which can come suddenly and painfully. But what about when the market is up, as it is most years and has been for years, and you might have one of two problems with that. First, what if, though the market is up, you aren't so much? Your stocks, your portfolio, you're underperforming. I'll speak to that. Or second, what if, since the market is up and up and up, you're worried that a purchase today will turn into a sudden loss tomorrow? I'll speak to that, too. These are all driven by your questions, your questions, and my and my talented team's best answers, questions, and answers that could only mean it's mailbag week on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Investor Island. It's our first ever Motley Fool mobile game. Battle with opponents to see who can control the island and what powers your battles? Well, the stock market. That's right. Real stock market data powers Investor Island like NFL data powers fantasy football. Reviews on the App Store in our first month, 4.7 stars out of 5. More than 300 reviews can't be wrong. Download Investor Island for free on your App Store, iOS, or Android, anywhere globally. And you too may one day rule Investor Island, though watch out for the fireballs. Download Investor Island for free today. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. All right, welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I'm delighted you're with me. This week has been quite a month for Rule Breaker Investing. We started off with stock stories. Yep, we recorded and we published it for you on New Year's Day. We brought you our first podcast of the year on 1120 Stock Stories. Volume 4. After all, a lot of the world likes to talk about story stocks, but we like to tell stock stories here at Rule Breaker Investing. We covered Etsy, Netflix, MongoDB, and Lululemon. The second week was my traditional second week of every year, my biggest losers. So, looking back over the last three years, my worst stock picks, Volume 5. That's right, we've done it five times. The week after, January 15th, the day the market crashed. We'll be speaking about that in a little bit. And then last week was my latest five-stock sampler. That's right, it was the Marie Port five stocks that spark joy. And that all brings us into then, therefore, the final Wednesday of this month, and it's our January mailbag. And I usually like to start this episode with a few hot takes from Twitter, and that's what I'm going to do right now. So, at Mr. Underscore Jam Vila 7 said, listened to an interview with at Chris McDougall on at RBI Podcast, decided to read Born to Run. So, this is reminding me that last August, we did Authors for August and had Chris McDougall on to talk about his work, particularly Natural Born Heroes. But the reason I'm reading this, J.M. Vila, is I love that you went on to read some of his other work after encountering Chris here at Authors for August. You go on to say, was expecting a documentary-type book about running. Instead, I found a great, true story with great characters. I enjoyed it very much and strongly recommend this book, hashtag fool on. Well, thank you, Mr. J.M. Vila. And I'm sure Chris McDougall in particular thanks you since you're promoting some more of his work. And yes, just last fall, Chris came out with his latest book, Running with Sherman, The Donkey with the Heart of a Hero. That's right, Chris running with a friend who happens to not be human happens to be a donkey. Haven't read that one yet, but what an interesting and compelling writer, especially for people who love to run. So, thank you for that. And I also want to highlight at Prof Rooney. Tom Rooney, you wrote, every loser is a learning opportunity. I'm glad you do this, not just for transparency or schadenfreude, but to let us all know that you can do well despite making picks that are bad in retrospect. And Tom, you're reacting to David's Biggest Losers, Volume 5. Thank you very much for saying that. Yeah, There are lots of lines about winning and losing. One of them, you either win or you learn. I think you're kind of channeling 
that, Tom, but I appreciate that. For me, I think the reason it's important to talk about losing is that it happens all the time for you if you're an investor with a lifetime commitment to the stock market. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, but it's critically important to talk about that and to share it and make it clear that that's part of the game. Even the best hitters in baseball history had more strikeouts than home runs. That's really important to note. And anybody who comes into investing not realizing that and thinking they have to be perfect, probably setting themselves up for the wrong mental framework and ultimately maybe not great performance. So, yeah, you got to lose to win. Thank you, Tom Rooney. Now, before we get started, I want to highlight one thing. I know this doesn't work for everybody because this is a greater Washington, D.C. area offer. But next week, on Tuesday, February 4th, John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods, the CEO of Whole Foods, is coming to Washington, D.C. to do an event for our Conscious Capitalism D.C. chapter. It's at 6 p.m. at the National Press Club here in Washington, D.C. It's going to be a wonderful evening. And I can give all of my listeners a 50% off of our ticket cost by using the code RBI. So I'm going to ask my producer, Rick Engdahl, to put in our show notes this week. If you are in the greater D.C. area, you'd love to join us. 50% off a ticket. We'd love to have you. We're going to put the URL right in the show notes. You can click that. And I hope you'll join us. I look forward to meeting you. All right. Well, without further ado, oh, my good friend Chris Hill is in the studio. Chris, welcome back. It's good to be back. I mean, it's strange for me to be welcoming you to the studio because you spend a lot more time in here than I do. But Chris, welcome. I always appreciate the invite (laughs) and the welcome. And unlike the last time you and I were in this studio together. I don't know about you, but I checked the market right before I came in the studio. This is not a drill, David. It's actually plummeting right now. (laughs) This is not a drill. Sorry, I couldn't resist. So, one of the things about doing the day the market crashed, which was January 15th of this month, Chris, is that we were conscious that it was not a live news show. Uh, I would have still been okay with doing that. I mean, Orson Welles seemed to do it successfully. Uh, memorably, with War of the Worlds, that was live radio. But we knew that this was a taped podcast, and I even tried to lead off just the cold open at the top, making it clear what we're doing. Which a couple of people skipped. Yeah, in fact, I wanted to share some, because we'll, let's talk about some of the tweets we got this week, Chris. And one of my very favorites was, um, at RBI Podcast and at TMF Chris Hill, you guys made me do a double take, actually more like a Triple take, all because I skipped past the intro, LOL. And my favorite thing about this tweet is it comes from don't be skip at don't be skip one. Like, don't be skipping, but he did. And so, I guess skip, and he's probably not the only one. Some people were still surprised by what we did. I think so. And I'm not surprised by that just because when I listen to podcasts, there are some podcasts where... I will skip the opening couple of minutes because maybe it's an interview with someone I'm interested in, and I know there's going to be, you know, sometimes it's a, it's a comedian who has a podcast, and their opening every show is, here are my upcoming dates, and I'll just hit the fast-forward button. I'll go, I was like, I, I'm not interested. I just want to get to the, the podcast part. So, it, 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 it was delightful to see, but it didn't surprise me that there were some people who were like, wait a minute, I skipped that. <laughs> and I... We want to make it very clear, Chris, you you never skip ads, right, when you're listening to podcasts. You would never skip the ad. That would be rude. Okay, it's it's a free podcast. The least I can do is listen to the ad. Thank you very much. Now, other reactions we got from the Twitter sphere, at Austin Lieb, Austin Lieberman, our friend, and I believe Austin is a contributor to The Motley Fool, so this is a little, maybe a little bit of a Homer tweet, but I don't want to say that at all, because Austin, this seems very sincere. You wrote, this is probably the best and most important investing podcast I have ever listened to. Bravo, Chris Hill, David, RBI podcast. It was very nice. And uh, I, I thought the same thing when I thought I thought that's a, a very genuine sentiment. And it uh, certainly most of the podcasts that I do, which are news based, uh, don't have a particularly long shelf life to them. Some of the interviews do, but the, the content of the news day to day, week to week, isn't necessarily something that holds up a month later, two months later, that sort of thing. I I do think that, to Austin's point, this is something that, to the extent that people feel like they want to share something with people who 
you know, every once in a while you'll see it on Twitter. Does anyone have any investing podcasts? I feel like not only is it nice when they recommend Motley Fool podcasts, but I think the episode of your podcast that we did, I think, is imminently shareable. And I hope people will. Um, I, I probably, whenever the market does have a really bad day or week, I'll probably just go back and listen to it myself once again. Just curious whether we got it tonally right. It's hard to feel as if the market is down 25 percentage points over the last 24 hours and really be that and do that when you and I and a lot of our listeners knew that that simply was not, not true. No, but I think uh, I know that I, I won't speak for anyone else. I know that I tried to think back to 2008-2009, and that sense of the my insides are caving in a little bit, that the the bad news is coming from all corners so fast that in late 2008, it was hard to process at times. Mm. And so, that's part of the feeling I was trying to channel, that that dread, almost. Yep, and I think you nailed it. At least you did for Derek Main, who tweeted at dmaincu21. Derek said, "I know the day the market crashed episode was fake and all, but I couldn't help but get chills and feel like it was actually happening." Well done, David Chris, RBI podcast. I'm reminded when he says chills that Chris, what is your first initial and your last name, and you put it all together? Chill. Is that your Motley Fool moniker? Are you TMF? No, you're not. No, I'm TMF Wizard. Why wouldn't you be TMF Chill? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'll change it. Is it available? <laughs> Maybe I'll change it. I, sh- I probably should. But um, I'm glad, Derek, that you felt that. And that was really what we were shooting for. Jesse Wood, at Jesse underscore Wood, said, Thank goodness I didn't skip the ads and introduction <laughs> for the latest RBI podcast with David and Chris. I might have been in for a little shock. The day the market crashed was excellent. That was pretty good acting. Was that off the cuff? Now, Chris... I am not an improvisational comedian. I've done some improv. You almost can't get through society these days without doing some improv. Like even in the workplace, we have stuff like that here at The Fool. But Chris, you are somebody who's done improv, and it seems like you convinced Jesse. A lifetime ago, I did some improv. But um, to Jesse's point and, and uh, Derek's tweet as well, uh, there were, it wasn't just you and me who helped prepare this episode. I uh, relied on. A number of investors inside this company, uh, people who work on your investing team. And I thought, well, what's the best way to do this? I'll email everyone. And I sent this email to uh, probably half a dozen people or so and laid out in ways that I thought were very clear what we were about to do. <laughs> and Did you fool anyone? No. <laughs> Wait, Chris, the market crashed? Pro- proving that I'm an even worse writer than I am a speaker. Nobody understood. I had to go desk by desk to explain to people, this is what we're doing. And once I did that, they understood. And they were very helpful. I basically said, look, pick a couple of stocks in David's universe and think about maybe not a doomsday scenario, but a really bad scenario, something that is plausible and would result in a stock dropping 30% in a single day, that sort of thing. Um, and so that's where we get things like the breaking news about Stitch Fix, mm, right. um, or th- I should say, the breaking news affecting Stitch mm, Fix. In which yes. case, Walmart buys Trunk Club from troubled retailer Nordstrom, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, it's not unreasonable to think it would have that kind of effect on Stitch Fix. Yeah, and it is in fact not unusual, frankly, that one of my stock picks, especially some of our raging rule breakers, might drop thirty percent in a day. That's happened. In- bunch of times over the last year, in part because we have a few hundred stocks under coverage. But I think what was remarkable and important about the day the market crashed is it wasn't just that it was Stitch Fix down 30%, which, by the way, it wasn't. I think we need to keep saying, this is not, we're talking about something that's not real. We're talking about a podcast we did two weeks ago. If you skip to this point, please know we're talking about something that didn't happen the day the market crashed. But, Chris, it wasn't just Stitch Fix crashing. It was actually that all of the stocks Basically, everything was down. Apple, Netflix, Amazon, all down 30% or so, which has happened in the past and probably one day will again. Absolutely. And I think that 
we've seen, you know, look, for as much fun as I like to poke at uh, the perma bears, the people who seem to make a living out of going on TV every couple of weeks and saying, well, now the end is really coming. Uh, I, I did try to incorporate some of the underpinnings of, well, what could happen? And again, to go back to 2008, 2009, um, if you see uh, a massive institutional pulling out of money. If you see, you know, combine that with some orders don't get filled immediately, and it happens late in the day. Um, you know, we were making it up for the podcast, but uh, some of the things we talked about were taken straight from history. Mm. Well, and I'll th- I'll throw out one more here. This is Warren Chapman at Business Snide. There's some great Twitter handles. That's a great among handle. our listeners. I mean, at Business Snide. Well done, Warren. He was responding to Austin saying, agreed. Uh, that means he he loved the podcast. Less than a year into investing and never experienced a crash when my money was in the game. Made my stomach upset and it wasn't even real. Will help me prepare strategically, but more importantly, mentally. That's, I, that's music to my ears and I'm guessing to yours as well because... That's why we did it. That's why we did it. We've been in this long enough that we vividly remember 2001, we vividly remember 2008, 2009, and while it is great to see people who are new to investing, not just joining The Motley Fool, but just joining the pursuit of investing in the stock market over the last one, three, five years... In the back of my mind, I've always had this thought that, okay, this is great. This is great that these people are doing this. I really hope they're okay when the next crash hits. Yeah. And, you know, last thing I want to say about this, and Chris, thank you so much for joining with me. I'm going to have a question for our listeners before you go. But I just want to add that market crashes in a single day, like the one we simulated a few weeks ago, are really not that bad in this sense. If you're saving money on a regular basis and putting it in every two weeks, which I sure hope if you're a wage earner, you're doing, uh, say putting it in funds or stocks or whatever. I like to invest in stocks directly, and I think everybody knows how I like to invest. But that just means that you know a few of those weeks, you're going to really take it on the chin for that one day. But then that very next week, you're going to be investing at much better prices than you had the week before. And so you're studying and taking out timing. What's really bad is not a bad day on the market, which we simulated, but prolonged negativity decline when you're really losing time. So when it happens really fast, ironically, people live in fear of that most of all, and yet that's not nearly as bad as an 18-month drop of 40% where the money that you put in week in, week out keeps going down. Absolutely. And I think that that's another thing we haven't seen for a while. Um, we will surely see it again at some point. I don't know when. Neither do you. Neither does anybody listening. And for that matter, neither does anyone who's going to go on television in the next month and say that they know. Um, uh, but it, it, it is all the more reason to keep investing, uh, to stay in as long as you can. And, um, and I, I, I think I've hit this point before uh, on market foolery, but don't blame the headline writers. The headline writers... Or I should say, I never blame the headline writers. They're just doing their job. So when the Dow is down 400 points, even though on a percentage basis, that's minuscule. Dow down hundreds of points today. Yes. It's like, yes. Do you know how big the Dow is? Do you know how many (laughs) tens of thousands of points it is? Um, But I don't blame the headline writers. They're just doing their job. It's all the more reason to dig a little deeper, look past the headlines. um, And this is part of why we invest. All right, Chris, well, I always have the feeling you're one of the busiest guys around Full HQ, so I'm going to let you go. But before I do, I want to say thank you very much. That was a lot of fun to do together. We don't do enough stuff together, so I'm going to put it out to our listeners. Is there another prank, hijinks, or partnership that you'd like to see between Chris and me? Get Chris back on Rule Breaker Investing sometime this spring or summer. Is there a sequel? We don't want to cry wolf maybe more than once. But uh, yeah, Chris, and maybe if you have a thought, Let's do something more together. I would love to do that. And I will just add, uh, to pull back the curtain a little bit, because I mentioned the prep I did with uh, the members of your investing team, is there were absolutely things uh, that you did not know I was going to say. And there were specific things where I said, in the case of Stitch Fix, I said, before we started recording, 
there's going to be breaking news about Stitch Fix while we're recording. <laughs> and I know what the news is, but I'm not telling you right now. It's going to be, we're going to treat this as though it's actually breaking while we're Make recording. Make it real. And so, to the extent that that informs suggestions from your listeners in terms of um, ideas that we could execute, mm-hmm. go for it. So, if anybody has a good thought about what Chris and Dave should do some other time in 2020, maybe that's next month's mailbag road trip buddy movie buddy like, like buddy cop movie so which are you the good <laughs> cop or the bad cop or wait are you the young or old one I, ironically i think i'm younger than you <laughs> but i project older and crankier no than you're you. the good looking young cop <laughs> and I, yeah i, I think thank i'm kind of peter falk that's you. how I'm, that I, I think i'm colombo i'm gonna be colombo to your dantana <laughs> Vegas. It's a good thing it's an audio podcast. (laughs) Thank you, Chris. Thank you. All right. Mailbag item number two. And thank you for writing this note, Aaron. This comes from Aaron. Hi, Dave. I was introduced to The Motley Fool in 2014 via The Motley Fool podcasts. Prior to that, I'd purchased one individual stock and invested regularly in index funds. I officially became a stock advisor member in November 2014 and I've remained so ever since. And over the course of my first year of membership, I built a portfolio of 10 stocks, most of which were among the starter stocks recommended on the website. And since that time, I've added many new stocks to my portfolio. In 2015, I started an investing journal to write down notes about stocks I wanted to add to my watch list. In July 2018, I also became a member of Rule Breakers. I've added a couple new stocks to my portfolio based on that service's recommendations. Aaron goes on, since December 2015, at the end of each year, I sit down with an Excel spreadsheet to calculate the performance of my investments and compare their performance to the S&P 500 over the same time period. Since 2015, my portfolio has never been more than 1% better than the S&P 500, which it is this year, he says. But most years, my performance has been a few percentage points worse than the S&P 500. This underperformance is further magnified by the fact that I invested in one of my best performers, Apple, Two years before I became a full member, if I took out that one stock, I've been beaten by the S&P 500 soundly over the past five years. I've been frustrated as I calculate my results each December, but I recognize I am early in my investment journey. And Aaron goes on from there to assert some more things. He says, I believe in the foolish philosophy investing. I'm not a stock trader. I am an investor. I've only ever sold one stock. I have no intention of selling any of my current holdings anytime soon. I've tried to be thoughtful and patient in my selections. I look to invest in companies that I consider good, both from a financial standpoint and from a conscious capitalism standpoint. And I do my best to not overreact to headlines. And he goes on and he says all of the right things. And toward the end, Aaron concludes, I've spent the last several months feeling like a fool failure. But then I begin to wonder if I'm really all that unusual. Looking across the Stock Advisor and Rule Breaker scorecards among the many great winners, there are certainly a lot of stocks that have lost to the market. So my question, do you know how many of your Motley Fool service customers actually beat the market? And if you do have that information, have you done any any analysis as to why some do and some don't? He closes, I want to make sure you don't feel I'm complaining or criticizing in any way, though I've not had market-beating returns. I've certainly learned a lot about investing. I've also been encouraged to invest more than I would have otherwise. And for that, I am richer. I've also not lost faith in the process. As I said earlier, I'm not selling anytime soon. I still have hope that my investments will beat the market over the long haul. Thank you for your time, Fulon Aaron. Well, I started that read by saying thank you for writing that note. And Aaron, thank you for sharing that. You know, it's frustrating, isn't it, to put in the time that you've put and paid the money, in some cases, to us for our advice and then feel as if you're not actually being rewarded for it. Because after all, as I'm the first to say, any of us could buy the index fund, mail it in with the gentleman's C, and do just fine. Jack Bogle has demonstrated that through the course of his long career and his long life. He showed us all that you can just buy the indices, save and invest regularly. Don't jump in or jump out or get scared by market downdrafts, and you'll do really well. And sure enough, I think you're on that path, Aaron. That's my first thought for you is what you're doing is great. You've put in a lot of time to build a portfolio. There was more information in your note that that I didn't share because of the length of the note, but I know that you have a a lot of stocks, so you've got a full portfolio. And it's not like you're dramatically losing to the market. And as you just mentioned, you're actually up. So the more money you put in, 
the richer you've gotten because you've been inspired to invest, but you're frustrated that you're not beating the market. Because sure enough, that's what I've dedicated my career to, is to helping people beat the market. And whether it's through paid services like Stock Advisor or Rule Breakers, or this podcast, which last I checked was totally free, um, I and so many of us here at The Motley Fool, we have about 400 employees these days, we're all working for you, Aaron, to be beating the market over the course of time. So, I'm going to say, I think you are on the path. I think you're right that if you just stay with where you are, don't do anything crazy, keep saving and investing. Maybe you don't probably have to buy that many more stocks. You can probably just add to existing positions. I think you're going to be really happy that you got foolish in November 2014. But I will close by saying, at the same time, I would encourage you or anybody listening to cancel our services or any other if you're investing in the service based on the premise you'll beat the market. The good news is, I think enough people do that they resubscribe from one year to the next. And I think The Motley Fool has prospered co-creating prosperity with our membership. But I'd be the first to say, if your goal is to beat the market, and for whatever reason, you're not picking those the stock advisor stocks or rule breaker stocks that are that are getting you there, then don't keep paying us. And maybe the last last thing I want to say now for now, Aaron, is time is your friend. Um, very often, if you look at what happens with money compounding over time, it starts to hockey stick by years 10, 20, by year 35. So 35 years from now, you're gonna watch all of a sudden you're gonna be amazed by what happens through the power of compounding returns. And one of my beliefs about investing is that you can lose quickly and early in a way that you'll never win quickly and early. I have a lot more stocks that will open up down 30%, as I just talked about with Chris, than open up 30% on a given day. So, I think in the short term, measured by just a few years, uh, underperformance, sometimes dramatic underperformance, is not that uncommon but over the long term, and I mean the long term, like your lifetime commitment to investing, pretty sure if you leave those winners in place, you're going to be really pleasantly surprised by what happens with your portfolio going forward. Anyway, thank you for sharing, for all your efforts, and we wish you the very best. And as I welcome my next guest, Max Keeler. Max, great to have you back to the studio this month. Thank you, David. As I welcome my next guest, and you put on your headphones, Max, I'm reminded that I do talk a lot about success and winning. And Max, what do winners do? Winners win. David. That's right. And so it's very natural, and it's an important lesson that I I hope we're constantly conferring. And it's a long-term win we're always talking about. But it's very easy to sometimes think, well, everybody must be winning all the time, and everybody using their services and listening to podcasts must all be winners. And if you feel like you're not, imposter syndrome as a listener of this podcast, I want you to know we're all losing all the time. And I've tried to make that really clear throughout this month of January, but uh, it's it's a real truism. So, Max, I know you and I are both investors. Um, in fact, have you owned some Amazon stock at some points in your life? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I bought Amazon a long time ago, and it was down for the first five years that I had it. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and that's yeah. that's really inspirational and important. In fact, yeah. we got a great tweet. I didn't share it this this week on the hot takes portion, but we got a tweet in the last week from somebody saying, "Hey, great job highlighting Tesla." Uh, everyone knows if you're following the market, the Tesla has been an amazing stock over the last three to four months. It's more than doubled, and it already had a massive market cap just you know a couple of months ago. Anyway, but I think it was Austin Lieberman, our fool friend. I think Austin was saying. It's really important, though, that people know the true investing journey of Tesla in Rule Breakers. We recommend it in 2011. It went up about six times in value over the next two years, which was amazing. 2011, 12, 13. Then for five years, the stock went sideways. It went up sometimes and then down others. It had no creation of value, 0% return, basically from 2013 to 18. Mm -hmm. The stock market had a great five year return. If you were judging Tesla over those five years, you're like, what is. What's up with this? But we got that initial six-bagger. We went sideways. And then, in just the last few months, we've watched it more than double again. And the overall story is an amazing one. And it sounds like winning, but you had to lose quite a long time in order to get that win. And, Max, you just said it with Amazon. Yeah, and uh, also, a Tesla owner, as a Tesla stock owner, it's been you know so many times I've thought, well, Maybe maybe I should dump this, keep it, you know, get while I'm ahead. But I, every time I've done that, particularly with the stock that I believed in, uh, I don't think it's worked out. Mm. So the yep the the holding, 
keeps on giving. For sure. I didn't even know you own Tesla, but yeah. that's great. Yeah, there you are. But anyway, rule breaker mailbag item number three. And Max, you are running Investor Island, our mobile game. You've talked some about the game. You gave some previews a few months ago. I wanted to have you on in part to respond to this mailbag item, but also in part to talk about what's coming to Investor Island in February. Okay. All right. So we got a note from longtime correspondent Bill Housley. And his note was actually about stocks that spark joy. So thank you for that, Bill. And that was, of course, my five stock sampler for last week, which I hope everybody enjoyed. And I hope those stocks beat the market. But his postscript to his note was this, Max. He said, Do you have some strategy recommendations for Investor Island? Because I am really bad. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, let me have you on yeah. briefly, right? But how sure. about like three tips to up Bill's game? In Investor Island, maybe the first one would be kind of an obvious, more. You know, maybe Bill might already know it, but maybe not everybody. Is. But maybe by the third, we start to get to something really subtle and important for experts to know. So you're going to level us all up right now, Max. No pressure at all. But oh, how yeah, about yeah. three ways that Bill can get better at Investor Island? Yeah, yeah. And, and Bill's not the first one to uh, contact us about some strategy tips and. Something we hope to do uh, in the next month or so is put together a little YouTube video so that uh, people can, can can see this and share it with their friends. And so, just a few little tips. Great uh, to get good at uh, at Investor Island. But uh, a, a few that come to mind. Um, first off, uh, you know, battle the bot for a bit till you're ready. And when you're battling the bot, what you want to do is go quick for gem tiles. Gem tiles from the get-go. Sprint towards them. The bot is not going to go for your temples early. And so, occupy gem tiles and then just let those accrue. All right. Now, I know not everybody knows our app. Not everybody has played Investor Island. But but just really, really clean here, just to make it clear, there are a few different modes of the game. You can play head-to-head against somebody uh, historically or live. You can also just take on the AI, or as you were saying, the bot. Yes. And you're also talking about the importance of finding the resource generators. In our game, it's gems. So, getting getting those resources to build your economic engine, sprinting for those, you're saying works well against the bot in particular. Yes, yep. Good tip. Uh, so, and then once you get uh, you get that, another uh, tip. Number I w- two. Number two is upgrade uh, your temples early in the game. Hmm. Um, I don't do that enough. Okay. Yeah. So, so those doing them later in the game, it's not going to help you out as much because it, just like investing, the earlier you invest, the more you'll get those compounding returns. You bet. Uh, from your temples. You so bet. Invest early in your temples. Um, the third is is more about spell selection and so one of the the spells you'll unlock relatively early in the game might take you a little bit of time mm-hmm. is lightning bolt uh, and lightning bolt as you know David um, is a very good offensive spell so you're going to use lightning bolt against the bots particularly to carve your way to the opponent's temple and then knock out a temple one temple at a time Outstanding. with the bot I would always go for a knockout win uh, rather than an attrition trophy win with the bot. Okay. Knockout win, be aggressive, go early, and you'll win. Outstanding. Well, coming from somebody who's highly rated and is also leading our team that's making this game, <laughs> Bill, I hope that's helpful. And Max, thank you for that. And yeah. And maybe tease a little bit about what's coming to, to the island in February. Yeah, so Investor Island has been out and about since really since December uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, we have... About 25,000 people have downloaded the game. Um, we have a pretty active user base. There are about 1,000 duels played each day, uh, even more against the bots. So there's a lot of action going along in Investor Island. So get in and play. Um, for our players, we've got some neat stuff coming. I'll tease uh, two that are coming very soon and one that's a little bit more in the distance. Uh, Great. The- the first are we've got two new spells coming, uh, and this is going to change things. Um, spell number one we've called Revive, and essentially what that is is it gives your any statue uh, a second life. So mm-hmm. once that statue is destroyed, it will pop back up, keeping all of its upgrades if it mm. had been upgraded. With one caveat. It'll have half its life when it comes back. So okay. Because otherwise, that'd be a little overpowered. If exactly. You just bring We're it back all always the way. trying to balance these things. So, um, 
That's so that definitely will change some of the dynamic of the game. Yeah. Now, for people not familiar with the game, there are spells on Investor Island, and you can only bring a few of them in your spell book. You have to choose ahead of time whether you want to bring Lightning Bolt or not. There are more spells than you can bring into a game, and so we're about to add even more spells than that and change up some people's strategies, I suspect. I haven't gotten to beta test Revive yet. I just like to download along with the rest of us. I'm one of your players here. I don't know what you guys are hatching, but Revive sounds good. What's the other? Uh, So the other one is called Watchtower, and it's a visually neat spell. (laughs) I think you've seen some previews of it, David, where there's a little eyeball that hovers over your statue and Mm -hmm. is constantly surveying the area. And that's the idea is that when you cast Watchtower on one of your statues, what it will do is it will make it so that if an opponent builds near that statue or next to that statue, that your forces will attack first. And so it is a way to kind of defend yourself um, while you're away, which is particularly important in in our live mode of our game. Mm. But it's also very powerful in the in the duel as well. All so, right, that sounds awesome. Watchtower and Revive coming to Investor Island in the next week. Before I let you go, Max, you did hint at something that's a little bit more distant, but that you're working on. Do yeah, tell. We're, we're really excited about this. And one of the, we've, get, we've gotten a lot of feedback from from our players and our particularly our podcast listeners. So thank you very much for for playing and, and all the great reviews. We're highly re, we're highly rated on the App Store. Uh, and uh, w- one of the pieces of feedback is, this is fun. I like it. It's uh, you know it's quirky. It, I love the game. The, it has a pretty tenuous connection to investing, and we'd be the first to admit that 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 that. Well, there are some investing lessons in there that you may not see at first. It, it's not a strong, strong connection. It's not as it's not yeah. like a market simulator or something like that. It's kind of by design. Yes, by design. There's nothing it's like it's a game. It. Uh, it's a game first, but we've added what we've called sort of a part of the meta game, which is the kind of the game above the game, like the reason to play the game uh, is what we call it. Is like you're collecting stocks is, is part of the meta game. But we've had an investment portion of our metagame where you can actually invest your own in-game currency into the stocks, into your collection, and then get the get the the returns from that. Mm. Uh, and it's it's not quite as simple as that, but uh, but we're still refining it. But we think players are going to really like it. It's going to be a lot of fun and be a little bit more connected to the market, which uh, I think. Uh, particularly our podcast members, will will enjoy that. Excellent. Yes, that is exciting. So we're bringing even more Invest to Investor Island. Yes. Sometime, are you going to say in the next month? Oh, uh, Can you commit to that? Or maybe March? Uh, you don't want to have to If there commit. are any software developers out there, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm going through right now. Uh, in the next quarter. All right, good. Yes. That sounds, that go sounds that. good. Yeah. Max, thanks for joining. Thanks, David. See you next time. All right, Rule Breaker Mailbag, item number four. And this kind of fits with what Max just talked about. This comes from Davor Barros. Thank you, Davor, for this this note. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of investing as a video game, I think is how I might entitle this. So, love this. Here it goes. Hi, David, longtime listener of All Fool Podcasts. In about a year or so, Rule Breaker is investing and a stock advisor member as well. I wish I started listening to your podcast and got the service and became a fool sooner in my investing career. I would have hopefully actually listened to your advice and avoided my early investment mistakes. These early investment mistakes bring me to a story about my younger brother, nine years my junior. Now, about two years ago, he and his wife finally got to a point in their lives after having two kids and getting a house where they started thinking about investments. The year's 2017, and bitcoins and pot stocks are all the rage. He asked me for advice about getting into those two areas. As you can imagine, as an investor, my advice was to stay the heck away, as he will be gambling and that he's also a little late to the game. It's okay to gamble, but understand that you are gambling, and don't pretend you're analyzing anything. Sure enough, he didn't listen, and that did not work out so well. In retrospect, probably a blessing. This is the point where he started asking me more questions about investing. I told him he needs to build a base first, focus on secure dividend stocks and ETFs, and learn slowly. Luckily, his wife listened to the ETF advice and started putting 
the bulk of their money into them. He didn't. He's still looking for a Hail Mary. He's flipping IPOs, buying stocks that are potential value traps. The frustrating part is, unlike me, who had to learn all this by myself, he has me to guide him. So, as he's a gamer, I got inspired by last week's industry-focused wild card podcast with Aaron Bush talking about the video game industry. I came up with an idea on how to break it down for him. I thought I should share it, as it might be useful to some of your listeners. Plus, I thought you might appreciate it as a gamer yourself, and indeed I do, Devil Warren. That's exactly why I'm presenting this as mailbag item number four this week. I think this is pretty great. Investing, he goes on, is like a real-time strategy video game. You typically start with a small village and very little resources and credits. You also get some monthly additional credits. This is the money that you have available to start and invest monthly. Now, the very first thing you do to build up your village is sending workers to build farms and mine for resources so you can get more credits, which means you start by buying dividend-yielding ETFs and stock aristocrats. When the first farms and mines start producing, you build more farms and mines, which translated back to investing, it says you buy more ETFs and dividend stocks with the money that you are making. Once you shore up your village defenses, production is ticking and the village starts to turn into a small town, you start building up an army, which would be the equivalent of starting to buy non-dividend stocks with good track records. And once you have a solid army built up, Devor, you can picture him saying this to his brother, the video gamer, then you can start developing your hero units, which are the equivalent of high growth stocks with high return potential. Now, if one of your army or hero units is always winning battles and the other is always losing them, in which one do you want to invest your credits and resources to upgrade their gear? That would be kind of like, he says, looking at your stock winners as heroes and when they hit some percent gain, invest more into them, let's say, uh, to level them up quicker. And what do you do when a farm or a mine is not performing? Do you keep on sending more workers to keep working that farm? Or do you just scuttle the farm or the mine and send them working on a higher-yielding location? And, of course, Devor would say, this is what you do with your losing stocks. If you stop believing, they're going to turn around, be brutal, and understand the time value of money. Finally, in conclusion, he says, once you truly develop your game and are a seasoned, high-level player, the initial struggles are a distant memory. You are amazed that you can pop more in one day than you ever did in a year when you first started. Since this is really written, I'm just channeling this, this is really written for his brother. He closes, Dear brother, what you are doing right now is you're putting all your limited resources into wrong hero units. Your understanding of the game is lacking, and sure enough, your units are dying. Okay, so the reason I wanted to share that is because whether, dear listener, you are a video gamer or not, and I know a lot of you are, I certainly am, Everybody knows a video gamer, and what a wonderful thing to send to your friend. This podcast, just the last four minutes, because any video gamer, really through DeVore's understanding of of how civilization games work, any video gamer now understands how they should be investing, and I would say investing with a capital F, foolishly. So, DeVore Barros, thank you for that. He said, hope this helps. Please keep on being foolish for a very, very long time. Well, we, we intend to do that. Thank you, sir. All right, Rule Breaker Mailback, item number five. And oh my golly, I have another special guest, Buck Hartzell. Welcome to Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you for having me, David. I appreciate it. I am so to delighted to have you, Buck. And I'm not sure we've spent yeah. that much time together on this podcast, even though we've kind of been at the same yeah. company working <laughs> sometimes together for yep. a long, long time. A long time, over 20 years. And I think this is my first podcast with you. So that's that, I'm delighted to have you here. And I actually, shame on me that I hadn't had you like two years ago. But Buck, right. here you are now. And if you would just briefly... Describe what you do with The Motley Fool. Yep. So, I'm an analyst. Uh, I've been here 20 years, so I've done a variety of different jobs. But one of those was building an analyst development program here. So, a lot of the folks that hopefully appear on this show and program, um, I helped develop at one point in time along the way. And now, I work on a variety of different services, mostly in Canada. So, if you guys are joining us from Canada, you might know me. Uh, most recent pick in Stock Advisor Canada came came from me. Um, but I also throw ideas to other services. So you'll see my stuff show up around the full. And Buck, you're one of the best read. We have a lot of good readers here, but you have pretty voluminous knowledge, I think, of the markets and you're, you have wide-ranging interest. And I have yep. to admit, I didn't even realize yeah. that the most recent Stock Advisor Canada pick was yours. Yep. So yep. look at you go. Right. So 
wide variety of stuff, but I think everybody's here. Everybody has an interesting knowledge base, and that's the fun thing about working here at The Fool. Well, thank you for joining me, Buck. And I've got a few items to share, and I'd just love to hear your thoughts about them. Sure. You ready? Awesome. Let's start with mailbag item number five. This is from Michael Schepler. Hello, David. I'm a 37-year-old nurse practitioner who's making good money for the first time in my life. Congratulations, Michael. The past couple of years have really started shifting my mind and goals toward investing, especially after selling a house and paying off all my student loan debt. Huzzah! I've been listening to Rule Breakers since July, bought Stock Advisor in October, Rule Breakers last month. I find myself feeling so behind and late to the party. It's difficult to think another Netflix or another Amazon could be on the horizon, but I am hopeful. I'm actively investing almost $2,000 every month. I moved over $28,000 from a 401k to an IRA. I've been picking stocks based off your services. I'm up over 10% of my portfolio in that amount of time, but I've definitely made some big mistakes by fear selling based, he actually says, in part on articles The Fool had put out about companies. Um, I'll say this: We write a lot of articles every day, and they come from contractors all around the world. Um, and we encourage people to take both sides, right, right, Buck? Yeah, I mean, we're a motley group, right? So everybody has different opinions, and I think there's a lot of folks, particularly that are newer in our services, that think we have a company line on every stock. We don't. We all have different opinions here, and we celebrate that, and we share them all. And then it's up to you to kind of come to the truth that works for you. That's yeah. right. And especially as a newer investor, Michael, I could see how you might have. Taken too seriously, something said. I don't know, negative about a company. I mean, we're all we're all learning. He does say my biggest mistakes were selling Shopify at 312 and Netflix at 298. But he felt like if they plummeted back to earth, it would have hurt him too much. Buck, yeah. he did say he was mistaken. But here here come the questions. Basically, he goes on to say that a lot of people think the market is waiting for a big drop, and I've already made that a focus of this month on the podcast and certainly this week's as well. Michael says, I know we've been in such a bull market for so long, I'm terrified of wasting another year of big gains, but I'm also fearful of watching my investments be chopped in half and not having the liquidity to capitalize on a down market. So, here's two questions. Real quick, Buck. First, with all the fear-mongering in the market, how do you stay the course with stocks that seem so highly valued? Yes. And we're 11 years into a bull market here, and we have a lot of people that, that, that are kind of waiting for the drop. And I, all I can tell you, Michael, from my past experiences, and we've had people that come on in 2008 and 2009, I remember posting in discussion boards say, you know, I, I was smart enough a couple months ago, I sold everything, right? I rarely hear those people come back and say, I've bought back in now, mm. right? So the, the, the hard thing about timing the market and kind of uh, getting out is you not only got to get out at the right time or you give up some of those gains you talked about, but the harder part is getting back in, right? So you have to be right twice. So what we do instead is what I think you're setting up to do, Michael, which is a great idea, is dollar cost averaging. So it's taking that $2,000 a month, putting it into some of your best ideas every month. And then if you look at the market as it goes up, up and down, as it goes down, that same amount of money that you're putting in is buying more of those wonderful investments in companies that you like and want to hold for the long term. And by the way, the money that we invest in those stocks should be money that we don't need in at least the next five years. So if you need it for something, buying a house, buying a car, it should be in cash or CDs or something else. But the money that we invest in stops is long-term investing. And when you look out five or six years, those bumps don't seem as bad as they do when you're going through them at that time. Mm. So, yeah. Straight foolishness, chapter and verse. And few can deliver it better than Buck Hartzell. Buck, you've not just uh, lived this, but yeah. you've taught it and you've yeah. conveyed this so well to all of our analysts. And of course, it flows through everything we do here at The Motley Fool. But some contracting writers might not have liked Netflix right. or thought Shopify was overvalued. And yeah. We're each making our best decisions, right? Yeah. There's no party line. That, that's right. And I would say, too, to some folks, like if you have been a long-term investor in these stocks and you've made a wonderful gain, um, I, I'm not against for some people selling off some of that and rebalancing their portfolios. To give you some general ideas, and these are guidelines for folks, um, uh, good ideas not to have more than 10% in one stock on buy-in. If it runs up and it's a hundred bagger for you, you might have more than that. But if you get un- <laughs> but if you get uncomfortable with a position, and the way I say that to folks is, if it drops 30 or 40% and it impacts the way you live your life, go ahead and sell some. That's okay to do. I would recommend you don't sell all of it <laughs> though, if you particularly like the company and it's doing very well. Um, so, but selling off some from time to time is not a bad thing at all. Really nice. His second question: How much do you actually recommend people keep in cash to yep. capitalize on, let's say, a major opportunity like a, a recession? Michael concludes it would be really sad to not have much money set aside if 
another great stock came along. Yep, that, that's a very that's a very personal question. Everybody has. Um, There's a no one idea. right answer. Right. There's not one right answer, but I'll give you some guidelines, and then I'll say a, a personal anecdote from something to work towards. You're very young, but maybe this is something as a goal to work towards. Um, generally, we tell folks to have at least six to nine months of living expenses set aside in cash. So if something happens, the furnace breaks, the car breaks, and whatever that stuff or is, or you break, or you break, or you lose your job, or things happen, you have that money set aside. So that's a six to nine months living expenses. Put that in cash. The longer term goal to work towards here, and I'll kind of give you the end result of this, is to work toward at a time where you're in retirement where you can have three years living expenses in cash. And I managed my father's money for a long time uh, before he passed away. And prior to 2008 and 2009, he was 100% in stocks. He had no bonds. He had a lot of dividend payers in there. Um, market went down you know, 37%. He had three years living expenses in cash. He didn't have to sell any stocks. We didn't sell anything. By the time that three years was over, we actually put some more money in and did very fine. So I'd say as a long-term goal, not at 37, Michael, but as you approach get retirement, I've had that goal. By the time I get there, when you're 70 or whatever age you consider retirement, having three years of, of living expenses in cash is a good goal. And that smooths out the bumps. A really nice rule of thumb. Yeah. All right. Well, this next one comes from Michael Badwi. And Michael says, hi, David. Rule Breaker Mailback Item Number Six. Love the most recent podcast you and Chris delivered earlier this month. It was really interesting to listen to the types of news items and updates that might be discussed in a real crash and see how calm I felt because my first reaction, Michael writes, to all this was great. Now, what and how should I buy? Which is really the basis for my question. Now, Michael goes on to say, I've been a full member for both your Australian and U.S. services since around 2012. I'm an avid listener to all your podcasts. I find the most important takeaway from the podcasts, for me, he says, is around temperament. So, as an example, back in October 2018, the market started to drop quite aggressively. Do you remember the fall and winter of 2018, yeah. Buck? It yeah. was a brutal quarter. December was particularly bad, and I remember coming in on December 26th, I believe, to buy some stocks for my kids and myself. Um, because that was a particularly bad month. Wow. There. Yeah. Well done, sir. I remember my portfolio declining 25% yep. in that December and early January, and then the market really flipped, and 2019 yep. Yep. was pretty special. But anyway, it's good to be reminded of those times. Anyway, mm -hmm. so the market started to drop quite aggressively. The Fool's approach on market foolery was to discuss a number of items around temperament, and I believe this is something we do exceptionally well in RBI podcast. The team does in general. Thank you. Now, Anyway, back to his question, which is around buying during market crashes and significant drops. Michael says, I know that the fool is an advocate of regular buying regardless of what's going on in the market, as over the long term, we should benefit regardless of what's happening today. And this is something based on our advice that he practices, too, he says. He's also aware that I've previously stated that market crashes can last up to 18 months. Well, that would be more like recessions or bear markets. But anyway, the length of these is always different. But if, say... He has 5 to 10% of his portfolio in cash, Buck, and there is a significant drop or crash. What does the data tell us about how we should think about either adding to our favorite positions or new positions with a view that we'll never know where the bottom is? So he basically asks here's the point blank question Should he deploy all of his spare cash on day one of a crash, especially if it's like a 20 or 25% single day drop, or to wait and see what happens and just keep regularly adding to his positions. Yeah, so I love that you're thinking about this uh, in advance, Michael, and uh, you're in Australia, so we wish you the best. Hope you're safe and everybody um, you love as well with all the uh, fires that are going on there. Um, but so I'm, I love that you're thinking about this in advance and you're getting prepared, and that's a great thing. I, in, a, in a quick nutshell, I looked up some stats, and this doesn't include 2008 and 2009, because I looked that back in an old article that I did. So, let's ignore that one, okay. but the rest are. We've had 11 bear markets since World War II, and the average decline is about 31%. And they, on average, last about 393 days. So, that's what we're talking about as average. So, obviously, we've had a long bull market. It's been almost 11 years. And so, it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that the next one might be a little bit longer or a little bit uh, steeper uh, than, than the average. But anyhow, so that gives us a rough idea to work with. So what I would do is if you kind of get in that situation, I don't think it all comes out in one day. I mean, it did on Black Monday. It was about a 25% ironic uh, decline. I can't predict whether that's going to happen or not, but usually it takes a little while. So I would just take that 10% cash or whatever I had, and I would divide it by 12 to 18 months and put it in an equal amounts, equal installments, 
and then pick your favorite things each month that you like. Nice. Yeah. So again, be incremental. Yes. Yeah. So much a world where people think it's buy or sell, binary thinking, in, all in, all out. But Buck, you yeah. in, in your own practice, me yeah. and mine, and what we've said for years of the fool, and I think we'll say years more, is it's about the gray, not the black and the white. It's about being incremental. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is it makes it more fun because if you go in all on one day and you happen to be wrong, boy, that kind of sucks, right? Yeah, like, you're going to so, be living yeah. with regret for right. probably years. But now if I do that over 18 months and I make 18 different calls, or if I do two picks in those months, now it's 36 different calls, I feel much better about the chances that I'm going to have some very good outcomes as opposed to picking that one perfect time. As they said, nobody rings a bell at the bottom, right? Or all the right. top. Well, thank you. But will you hang around for one more? Sure. Absolutely. All right, great. One I'm more. This to. one's from Bill Davis. This is the second last point of this Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag. And here it is for you, Buck. Bill says... Hi, David. I know that being recognized as a dividend aristocrat generally means that a company's been strong and well-run over a long period. So, again, dividend aristocrats, a category, a label given to companies that pay regular dividends and have increased those dividends for years and years. And so, for people who like income from their stocks, they love the dividend aristocrats, Buck. And I'm going to have you talk about that in a sec. But Bill goes on, I'm interested in hearing stories about how companies stumble from that, how a company with a strong track record, takes a turn and falls out of dividend aristocrat status. It seems like looking at several examples like this maybe could provide some insight into danger signs looking at our own stock holdings. How about it? Now, I want you to speak to this, Buck, but before you do, I want to say I like this topic. Rule Breaker Investing doesn't really hunt for dividends, but I love talking about investing. So, I think maybe sometime this spring, we should do a dividend-focused Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. Just sure. a one-off sum. We can talk some more. Maybe, yeah. Buck, you could rejoin me sure, then. Sure, that's have... great. Okay, good. But but for now, what, what would be an example of a failed dividend aristocrat and a little pattern recognition around right. that? So, that's, that's a great question. And first, I want to give a little bit of... Uh, um, kind of context here for those of you who maybe want to follow these strategies. And I'll give you two investment ideas. And if you go to Morningstar, you can actually type in SDY, and they have a fund for that that tracks um, dividend aristocrats, and that's their high-yield version. And for those of you right now, that's yielding 2.78%. And something kind of interesting, they compare a fund to the category average there, right? Mm-hmm. The category average is 283 So, 2.78% is wow. actually less than the category average. Their so, dividend aristocrat yeah, fund right. is a lower yield. Their high yield dividend aristocrat fund is actually lower yield than the average of the funds in that category. All right. So, as you said, Bill, this is kind of a quality indicator. It's a quality indicator these companies have been able to raise their dividends for at least 25 years. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're a high dividend yielder now. So, 2.87% is what you're getting from SDY. The other one is NOBL, so like Noble, and you can type that in. That's the regular one. That's current yield is about 1.89%, so a little bit less there. So, these are funds that somebody who doesn't want to buy shares directly. They just want to buy a fund that has these dividend types of aristocrats in it. And that's kind of the yield you could expect. And those are a couple examples. Yes, exactly. And those, there's a fee associated with those. I think it's 35 basis points, so about a third of a percent. And you can look at what they have in there if you want to go in and kind of recreate it yourself. You don't have to pay that fee. Or if you just want to pick out the, the stocks that you like. Now, back to the question about why these fail. I mean, I didn't have a ton of time before I came in here, but one of the ones that I tend, out, by the way, right. to invite my special guests 15 minutes before <laughs> right, we do right. the podcast. That That's good. a little known yeah. fact about the Rule Breaker Investing mailbags. Dave is usually right. dropping notes via Slack, like just minutes before I'm asking you to come yes. on and present data. Right, exactly. And then I got the questions, and then somebody else said, hey, can I ask you a quick question, which turned into a little bit longer than a quick question. So it was you should stop minutes. being right. so helpful. I know. Well, I tried. But anyhow... So, um, we look about ones that failed. GE is one of those companies that has failed as a dividend aristocrat, Mm. and they had one of the longest, richest histories of paying increasing dividends, I think back to the 1940s, which is incredible. And um, my my guess is, and we haven't looked at all those, and maybe we'll come back and Mm -hmm. and do that at a later date sometime this spring, uh, is that mismanagement is probably pretty high on, on the list of why companies fail. And one of the other problems, and I looked at a couple of the common holdings in in these dividend aristocrats, and one was IBM, a company that isn't really wow. known for uh, 
you know, capital appreciation over the last decade. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> hasn't done that well. They've borrowed money, bought back a lot of stock, and they pay a pretty good dividend. But the stock has not done anything, right? And they pay out about sixty-five percent of all their profits each year. That's a payout ratio. Exxon Mobil's in there. Another company, obviously, they've been in the energy sector, known as a very good company, but just in a very difficult sector right now. Um, and they pay out about sixty-five percent. So. What happens, I think, over many decades and years is as these companies go and they're paying out 65 to 70 percent of all of their earnings, there's less money left over for them to reinvest in other areas and grow the business. And what happens is, I think, a lot of those managers of those companies, they're probably not owner, operator, founder led companies, hmm. they're professional managers. And it's probably easier for them to get disrupted as businesses. But that's a that's a hypothesis. We haven't looked at all that. Uh, but certainly in GE, uh, Jeffrey Amel uh, didn't have a great track record, and he may, he also made some pretty bad acquisitions at pretty high prices that didn't work out very well. So that's one anecdotal. Uh, a great example. In fact, I'm going to we're going to use our social media presence in the coming week or two. We're going to put a poll out. Should Rule Breaker Investing do a dividend aristocrat-focused episode, yes or no? And as somebody who's a man of the people, who listens to the Vox Populi, if we see a greater than 50% response, we will do that episode. And Buck, if we don't, that means not enough people care. We will not do that episode. So it'll be really interesting to see whether the people want Buck back. Power to the people. Power to the people. They can decide. And I'll I'll add one last thing in, and I know we're uh, running uh, short on time, Bill, Um, but uh, one area that I prefer over dividend aristocrats is of kind of newer companies that have really strong balance sheets. Most recently, that's been Apple and Microsoft mm. and those types of businesses that hint or say that they're going to begin to pay a dividend, right? Ah. And those tend to increase their dividends at a much higher rate than inflation. And so some of those newer companies, even if it's before they start paying, I like those businesses more than I like the ones that have paid it for 40 years. The but that's coming, just my personal opinion. The coming aristocrats. Yes, yeah. Well, I suspect the people might want to have Buck back, given what he just said, because we're not just going to do some backward-focused look at IBM. We're talking about maybe the new aristocrats. If maybe. the people want us to, the foolish, to go there. The foolish aristocrats, maybe we could call them. Capital yeah. the F, future, of course. We're future-looking. The future-looking aristocrats. Well, right? Buck, at yeah. this company, you're an aristocrat. Thank you very much for joining in this week. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it, David. All right. And my final Rule Breaker Investing mailbag item, number eight. And yes, I do usually try to save the best for last in every mailbag. I don't know if this is the best, because there was a lot of good this show. But Jordan Hopper, you said this. David, I'm a member of both Rule Breakers and Stock Advisor. I want to start by thanking you for these services. I started investing after hearing the story of the gentleman who started saving half of his raises as a young man. Then later, when he and his wife were out to dinner with friends, he disclosed that they saved approximately 40% of their income. Jordan goes on, I started using a similar approach with my past few raises at my job. I'm happy to report I now own shares in about 20 different companies. Rick, throw me a record scratch. I just want to stop it right there, because what I really want to reshare in closing is that wonderful money-saving story from Dave Geck to inspire you, dear listener. Jordan was inspired, and if you don't already know this, I hope you'll be inspired too and to share it out. So here it goes. Longtime Fool member Dave Geck wrote me a few years ago. Back in 1975, one of my instructors took a few minutes to talk about finances. He had a recommendation. He suggested that when we graduated, we take $5 of our $625 per month that we were going to receive as second lieutenants, $5 of it, and do so without fail, without changing the amount, until we were promoted to first lieutenants. He asked us, how much would we have? Now, Knowing it would take two years until we were promoted, we quickly figured 24 times $5 plus interest would be about $125. He commented that, yes, it would not be much, but the goal of the first two years was to develop the habit of saving. He then suggested that upon getting a raise, actually two raises, one for the promotion and one for two years of service, that we save half of the increase and use the rest to pay additional taxes and increase our standard of living. He pointed out that if we could make ends meet on a second lieutenant's salary in our 24th month, then we could make it during the 25th month on that amount plus half of the increase. He said to do this throughout our career, and we would have a sizable sum by the time we retired. It made sense to me, Dave went on. 
I did not have a career of military service, but I followed his advice with my civilian pay. And when I was about 55, my wife and I went out with another couple, and the husband asked if we'd saved anything yet for retirement. He said they were concerned, as they had not yet started. I related the story of my instructor's suggestion and said we were probably saving about 40% of my gross salary. They were shocked. The next day, I came home and my wife greeted me with music to any husband's ears. She said, you're right. I had no idea of what she was speaking. I was almost afraid to ask about what I was right about. She said that when she heard my story, she thought it was quite an exaggeration to say 40%. She said she'd never added it up, but did so that morning. We had some money going here and some going there. She was shocked to find out that it added up to 42%. She said she would have believed 30%, but obviously not 40%. Dave concludes, in all my years, I have never heard of anyone else following that approach. I've suggested it numerous times, but know of no emulators, though I do think he says my youngest daughter and her husband have been close to following it. So, in conclusion for this week, thank you for listening all the way to the end. And we talk a lot about foolish investing. We always will here. But what powers capital F foolish investing? The habit of saving. Thank you, Dave Geck. Thank you, Jordan Hopper. And thanks to each of you for suffering a fool gladly yet another week. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.